Great, thank you. <laughs> That's a great intro to every sermon in this series. So we're in a series uh, that Pastor Kevin has chosen, and he and I have consulted about it, Questions to God, or Questions for God. So what are some questions that people often have for God? And he put out a questionnaire, and some of you answered, maybe all of you did, and, and he and I sat and went over them and talked about which ones he would preach on, which one I would preach on while he's in Texas. And I said, please let me preach on the one, is God in control? Now, it might seem to you like there's a simple answer to that because we hear it all the time. We see it even on bumper stickers, God is in control. And one of our favorite truths of Christianity is, our God reigns. One of my favorite songs, but it comes right out of the Psalms. Our God reigns. The Bible clearly tells us, and our experience confirms, that God is the ruler over all. Well, I wholeheartedly affirm that truth, but with one reservation or one qualification. It has to do with an alternative biblical theme. When I read the Bible, according to it, the witnesses in the scriptures that God does not yet get his way in everything that happens. Now, that might be shocking to you because I don't know about you, but I grew up with the idea somehow that God has a blueprint and everything that happens happens according to a divine blueprint. And that's easier to believe when I'm walking around in the forest this morning in the cool air and looking at the beauty of God's wonderful creation, but it's quite harder to think about when I see on the news about a mass shooting in a, church, in a school in Uvalde, Texas, where up to 20 children are, are slaughtered. And all that happens all the time, over and over again. And then, then the question really comes to the fore, is God really in control? Of that. So the Bible seems to confront us with two equally important truths that seem, at least on the surface, to conflict with each other. And let's look at two examples with two pairs of passages. And I'll begin with Jeremiah 29 11, a verse that we all know. It says, For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then I'm going to turn back to Joshua and to another passage. So bear with me as I get back to Joshua. It's always harder to find things in the Old Testament, isn't it? So Joshua um, 23.14. Joshua 23.14. And now I am going to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one thing has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Not one of them has failed that God has promised. But then I want to turn to a couple of passages in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3, 9. And read that. That's always a hard one to find, too. Second Peter three nine. Oh, it comes right after First Peter. Sure. Second Peter three nine. 
The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And then finally, Matthew 7, 21. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. I'm going to explain why I chose these verses for this morning. Now, we just read that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But, Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone, Jesus speaking, says to me, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. So on the one hand, just taking the New Testament verses that we read, God is not willing that any should perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance and enter into his kingdom. And yet he himself says there will be some who in the end will fall away and not be welcomed into his kingdom. So that can't be the will of God, because God is willing, wanting that all should enter in to eternal salvation. And yet, Jesus himself said, some will not. So these two biblical themes, that God wants something, but that won't happen for everyone, also appears in Christian hymns, such as This Is My Father's World, that we're going to sing right after this, that talks about a battle. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, will be satisfied, and heaven and earth will be one in the future, but there's a battle going on, and I want to talk about that this morning. What is that battle? Why is there a battle going on if God is in control? And, of course, Luther's great hymn that we sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, also talks about the power of Satan opposing God, but in the end, he can't win. But right now, he's very powerful, but one little word can fell him. Now I'm going to drop a heavy claim on you, and please bear with me as I explain it throughout my sermon this morning. I'm going to say this, and this is the big point, but then I'm going to explain it, so please stay with me. Right now, today, God is in charge, but not yet in control. God is in charge, but not yet in control. Now, that would make a little bit too big of a bumper sticker to put on the bumper of my car, and I'd get a lot of questions. People would be stopping me in parking lots and going, what does that mean? Come on. What do you mean God is in charge but not in control? But you're my captive audience, so I get to explain it to you. Feel free to ask me afterwards if if you don't understand anything that I say about that. Equally God-fearing and Bible-believing Christians, Jesus-loving Christians, who I no, love the Lord, disagree about God's control or what we call God's sovereignty. So if you'd put the picture of the two men up there, some of you will recognize the one on the left. That's former and late Attorney General of the United States, not Attorney General, uh, Surgeon General of the United States, C. Everett Koop. How, how many of you remember C. Everett Koop? He was Surgeon General of the United States under Ronald Reagan. He was a Christian. He was an openly, overtly Christian man. 
and believe very strongly in God's present and always control over everything that happens. I'll talk about him, and I'll talk about the one on the right, Louis Smeads, who I got to know personally when I lived in Texas. He came to speak at the seminary, and I had the privilege of driving him from Dallas Airport down to the seminary in Waco, and we had a wonderful conversation about God's sovereignty and whether God is in control or not. So these are two really well-known, influential Christian men who have talked and written about this subject of God's control. Now, C. Everett Koop came to speak at uh, at Bethel College when I taught there in Minnesota in the 1990s. And I heard that he was coming to speak in chapel, and I thought, wow, I have to go hear this great man, this Surgeon General of the United States, who's such an outspoken and well-known Christian. And I thought he was going to talk about the evils of smoking. Because if you remember, C. Everett Koop was on a, on, a, a, on a crusade against cigarettes and tobacco and smoking. That was what he spent all of the time as Surgeon General fighting against was uh, tobacco and lung cancer and so forth. So I thought I was going to go and hear him speak to the students, especially about don't smoke or you'll get lung cancer and so forth. And that's not what he talked about. His talk was, and the title was, God Killed My Son. God Killed My Son. Talk about a sermon title that gets people's attention. We all sat up and listened. And actually he wrote a book about it called Sometimes Mountains Move. That was published in 1979, and in his sermon in the book, he talked about how his son was killed in a climbing accident, a mountain climbing accident, and he said, God moved the mountain and caused his son to fall and die. I was in quite a bit of shock listening to that because that's not what I believe. But when I met Lewis Smeads, who taught then at Fuller Theological Seminary in California, I told him about that as we drove down the interstate toward the seminary and had a rolling seminar and so forth. And he said, you know what? I also had a son who died. And he said, I don't agree with Brother Coop that God killed my son. God didn't kill my son, and God didn't kill his son either. And he quoted another person named Nicholas Wolterstorff who wrote a book, Lament for a Son, in 2002, who said, it's an obscene thought that God jiggled a mountain to kill someone. Well, so we're faced with a very profound question about God's power, about God's control, about God's goodness in the face of evil and innocent suffering, and there's so much of that all around us. And as a Christian theologian for 40 years, no question has come to me as often and as emotionally and profoundly as this one. Is God in control? And usually it comes out of a context of someone losing a loved one or seeing on television some horrible tragedy that really gripped them inside and made them really wonder about God's goodness or God's power or both. Because, you see, there is a problem. How can God reign and be ruler over all as we sing and there be such evil and suffering in the world and in our lives. And inquiring minds want to know. And I think there's no question more urgent or pressing than this within our faith. Someone has called evil and innocent suffering the rock of atheism. Because so many atheists claim this disproves the existence of God. Back in the 18th century, there was an Enlightenment thinker named Voltaire. A deist and a skeptic who 
may or may not have believed in God, but he, he read an essay by Alexander Pope in which Alexander Pope attempted to justify God's ways in the face of all the evil and innocent suffering in the world. Because right about that time, there had been an earthquake in Lisbon, Portugal, on a Sunday morning when almost everyone was in church, and 50,000 people died in and around Lisbon, Portugal, on one Sunday morning during church. And Voltaire said, God should his ways to man explain. So he was just sweeping off the table all of the explanations and all of the defenses of God and so forth and saying, no, no, God is accountable to us. He needs to explain his ways in light of the Lisbon earthquake, which was nothing compared to things that have happened since then that we know about, such as the tsunami in Southeast Asia a few years ago in which 250,000 people died. So on the one hand, we Christians want to say that God does not owe us an explanation. And that's true. God doesn't owe us an explanation. God's ways and God's thoughts are not the same as ours, according to Isaiah in chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. God is so high above us and so exalted and lifted up, and his thoughts are not our thoughts, and our ways are not his ways. And we often fall back on that in the face of evil and innocent suffering. And on the other hand, when most of us face some horrible tragedy, we want to know, where is God in this? Where is God? And that's a legitimate question. I, I don't ever ridicule or shame anyone for asking that question. I don't remember my mother's death, but she died when I was two years old. And I know that you know, she was a godly person, and people were praying for her healing. And my father and my grandparents and people in our church were all praying for her to be healed, but she wasn't. And she died alone in a hospital room on a Monday morning uh, at age 32. And growing up, I heard my grandparents talking about it and asking, where is God in that? But so many of us, almost all of us, have had something like that happen. Over the centuries, equally devout, equally Bible-believing Christians like Coop and Smeads have come up with two opposite explanations, and both of these still carry great influence among Christians. First of all, many Christians like Coop believe that God right now and always controls everything. Everything that happens without exception is designed, ordained, and rendered certain by God. And there's a hymn about that. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. And part of the hymn says, Behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. In other words, it may seem evil and awful to us, but to God, there's a good reason for it, even if he doesn't have to explain his ways and doesn't to us. There's a uh, young Christian band called Cademan's Call that also has a song called There Is a Reason in which they argue the same thing in the song, in poetry, that God always has a reason. Everything that happens, no matter how awful it is, God did it and had a good reason for it. But on the other hand, there are Christians like Lewis Smeads who believe that God will eventually control everything, but right now, all the evil and much of the suffering in the world is not God's will. God is not always getting his way right now. 
Both views, both of these views exist side by side within many churches. Both views exist side by side, often within a single human breast. But they can't both really be true. So why these two views? Why have they always existed throughout church history and still are around today among Christians? Well, possibly because, as I tell my students, the Bible is not always as clear as we wish it were. And I tell them that's a good thing because it keeps us theologians employed. But also, possibly, the Bible is clear, but our minds are not clear as we struggle to understand it. So we're working to understand the Bible, which seems to present us with these two themes. One, that God is in control, and the other one, there is real evil and innocent suffering in the world that is not God's will. Is there a way to reconcile these two seemingly conflicting themes of Scripture? Is there a way to confess that God now reigns, but also evil and innocent suffering are not his will? Yes, I believe there is. It may not satisfy everyone, but I have found it satisfying both biblically and spiritually. And I want to share it with you this morning. So I have several points, and if you'll put these points up there, I'll go through them. You may not be able to read them uh, because they're pretty small there. First of all, our God reigns means to me that God has a big plan and is almighty And nothing any creature can do can thwart God's big plan. God will, without fail, bring about his promised union of heaven and earth, in which his will will be done on earth as in heaven. Now, let me me point out the the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He taught us to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which implies it's not being done yet on earth as it will be in heaven. But the Bible promises that there will come a time when God's perfect will will be done on earth now as it is in heaven. Second, our God reigns means that right now, before that future glorious day when God unites heaven and earth, much that happens in our world and in our lives is not God's will, even though God allows it. And you might say, why does God allow it? He hasn't told us. We have to wait for the answer to that often. Third, God is sovereign over his own sovereignty. People say to me, but wait a minute, don't you believe in God's sovereignty? Yes, I do. I believe that God is sovereign over his own sovereignty, meaning he does not have to control everything to be sovereign. He has given us, his creatures, free will to resist and oppose him. And that's actually a great sign of his power and sovereignty, of his rulership, that he has willingly given some sovereignty over to us. Fourth, God gave creatures, both angels and humans, freedom to resist and oppose him because God is love, and love cannot be coerced. So God wants to invite us to do his will, not force us to do his will. Fifth, all of the evil and innocent suffering in God's world is ultimately the result of creatures, our defection from God, our disobedience and open rebellion against God. We're told that in Genesis 3 and in Romans 1, but I want to be careful here and say, it's not that my mother died because of some sin in her life. Death and sickness and tragedy and calamity come about because of Adam and Eve's defection from God's will. 
in the garden. And all the bad that's happening in our world is the consequence of that and of our going along with that. So it's not that there's a one-on-one kind of uh, correspondence between suffering and sin, but sin has brought about a world where God does not always get his way, and there's evil and innocent suffering in it. Sixth, the Bible tells us that a consequence of creatures' defection from and rebelling against, against God is a curse upon the ground and bondage to decay. So nature itself is broken because of creatures' sin. Genesis tells us this. God intended it to be a perfect garden, a home for us, in which we can thrive, but even nature was broken by humanity's fall. Seventh, God is so good and so powerful that he can always bring good out of evil and out of innocent suffering, no matter how terrible and tragic it is. That doesn't make it good that God can bring good out of it. It's still evil and wrong. But we can take comfort in the fact that if we turn it over to God, God can bring something good out of it. I want to read from Romans chapter 8. Because this is a powerful passage that tells us about this. Romans chapter 8 should be familiar to you. Paul, writing to Christians who are being persecuted, says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation, that's the world we live in, was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. So God promises that he will bring good out of all this evil and innocent suffering that surrounds us. Now, most of what I've said up until now is pretty standard Christian belief and wholly consistent with the Bible, even though many Christians prefer to believe that everything that happens is God's will and controlled by God. One of the most influential pastors in America and perhaps in the world, John Piper, spreads that message, unfortunately, to many young people, that everything that happens is foreordained and willed by God and rendered certain by God, including sin and evil and so forth. I don't agree with him, obviously, about that. I think God has limited himself to not exercise that kind of control. God is in charge, but not in control yet. But there's another side to this story of evil and innocent suffering, something that many good Christians today really have trouble wrapping their minds around. So get ready. I'm going to drop a bomb on you. And that is the Bible tells us that we are right now living in enemy-occupied territory. And that God calls us, you and me, God's people, to join the resistance and fight for his cause against the enemy. And many people call this spiritual warfare. 
Now let me back up just a moment, though, and talk about Satan and his minions, the fallen angels or demons, which makes us very uncomfortable. I know the minute I bring that up, because I brought it up in my classes for 40 years, and immediately there's a tension in the room, like, oh no, what's he going to say? Because there's just so much said about Satan and demons and, and all of that that's just horrible and terrible. So I want to get it right, but I want to take it seriously. Especially when we go beyond saying that Satan is a defeated enemy to saying with the Bible that even though he was defeated on the cross of Jesus Christ and by Jesus' resurrection, he is still kicking around, causing a lot of evil and innocent suffering. Four times in the New Testament, Jesus and Paul refer to Satan as the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air. Jesus told his disciples that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, but scholars disagree much about what he meant by that. It's one of the most obscure passages in the Bible. I think it refers to Satan's fall from heaven when he rebelled before God created us in this world. Any way you interpret it, though, there's no escaping the fact that the New Testament, including Jesus, talks much about Satan as a living and powerful enemy of God and of God's people. But we'd we'd rather skip over that because it really makes us uncomfortable. This very important biblical theme does make us uncomfortable, and it's hard for Americans to believe that there's an invisible war going on in heavenly places, as Paul talks about. In an unseen and invisible spiritual reality, there is a war going on, and Paul talks about it in Ephesians 6. He says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in heavenly places. The way I read the Bible, and the only way I can see it being read faithfully and seriously, is that we are living in enemy-occupied territory, and we're called by God to help him defeat the enemy, the occupier. Perhaps rather than calling natural disasters acts of God, as insurance companies used to, we should call them acts of Satan. But in fact, we don't always know what's causing tragedies and calamities and terrible things like plagues and earthquakes and tornadoes that kill people. All we know is that this present world is not the way God intended it to be. It's not the garden he wanted us to be living in, and Satan is part of that. Let me offer a homely illustration. During World War II, several nations occupied by Nazi Germany had monarchs who fled to England. And there in London, for example, set up governments in exile. The king of Norway fled and went to England and set up a government in exile while Norway was being occupied by Germany. The queen of the Netherlands was another one who fled the Netherlands with the support of of her people and set up a government in exile. Their subjects back in the home countries, Norway and the Netherlands, formed resistance groups to sabotage and undermine the occupying powers in their countries. And most of the subjects of those kingdoms proclaimed their monarchs in exile as their true rulers, even if secretly, because they would have been punished for saying it openly. Now, no analogy is perfect, but the Bible seems to be telling us that God, although not in exile, so that's one place where it falls down, he is very present with us, is not in control of everything right now. The enemy of God is strong, 
And we're called to choose sides, either with and for God or with and for the occupying enemy. When I was growing up in a very evangelical church, we used to sing many, sing many songs about this biblical theme. We sang, keep on the firing line. Am I a soldier of the cross? I am on the battlefield for my Lord. Onward, Christian soldiers. And who is on the Lord's side? I don't hear these biblical, this biblical theme expressed as much today in songs or sermons or lessons or Christian books. I think we have confused the battle language of those songs with physical violence. But that's not what they're referring to. But we shied away from them and many hymnals have expunged them because of that confusion. They're referring to spiritual warfare, not physical violence. Now, over the years, I've had many, many students come to my classes from Africa and Asia and Latin America and tell me this biblical theme of occupied territory and the power of Satan alive and active and doing things. This is a daily reality in their lives, they tell me, in their home countries. And privately, they told me it is so crucial in their Christianity that they're profoundly confused and even dismayed that they don't hear it talked about here among Christians as much. In closing, let me return to a hymn I mentioned near the beginning of this sermon, and we're going to sing it after I close. This is my father's world. What beautiful, beautiful words that song contains. But there's a difficult sentence in the third verse that many hymnals now exclude and put words in, in their place. The words are, this is my father's world, the battle is not done. It's almost like there should be a but in between those two parts of that sentence. This is my father's world, but the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, shall be satisfied in the future and heaven and earth be one. But that's not the case yet. God is calling us to fight and work with him for heaven and earth to be, earth to be one. The exclusion of that verse or part of a verse, the change of those words to other ones, makes me think that many evangelical Christians in America are even consciously doubt playing this biblical theme of spiritual warfare. However, I have to confess that I know no other way to explain to myself or to others some of the things I see and hear and read about in the news and observe in the world around me. Now, don't get me wrong. Satan has no power other than what people give him, except the power to tempt and to lure us away from God. But he is, as it says in 1 Peter 5.8, a roaring lion, stalking around, seeking whom he may devour. But he can only devour people who give in to him. If we're not vigilant and protective against him with weapons of spiritual war, such as Pastor Kevin talked about a few weeks ago, such as powerful prayer, then we may give in to him. And we may be affected by his power. So really, finally, back to the main question, what do I mean when I say that God is in charge but not in control? Can you put the slide up of the ocean liner, the picture of an ocean liner? One of my favorite Christian authors, A.W. Tozer, 
wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And if you've never read it, you really should. It's one of the most powerful devotional books that blends theology into it that I have ever read. And I always recommend it to my students. It's a book about God's uh, attributes. And one is on God's sovereignty. There's a chapter on God's sovereignty. And A.W. Tozer says, God is like the captain of an ocean liner leaving New York and going to Liverpool. And it is guaranteed that the captain, our captain, will get us across this ocean in spite of many dangers and, and threats that come about. And in spite of many things happening below deck that the captain doesn't want to be happening. He's not in control of everybody below deck, but he is in control of the ship. And the ship is going to get to Liverpool, to heaven. And that's Tozer's image of God's sovereignty, and I agree with that. But the question is, we below deck, what are we doing? Are we praying? Are we working against the power of Satan and for God? Whose side are we on? Are we using the weapons of spiritual warfare to fight against the power of Satan or giving in? And are we thinking of every tragedy that happens as somehow part of a divine blueprint and God wanted it to happen? And I can't believe that. God is the enemy of evil and innocent suffering and wants to defeat them, bring good out of them, yes, but ultimately defeat them. Pray with me, please. Lord, we confess together this morning that you reign. You are the ruler yet, in spite of the fact that the battle is not yet done. We want Jesus to be satisfied and heaven and earth to be one. And we look forward to that day, as you have promised, when that will be real. But we know that in the meantime, there's so much evil and innocent suffering in the world around us. But you've called us to be the resistance fighters against the enemy who causes so much of that to happen. Help us to think through what it means when we say that God is the ruler, that God reigns. Realize that you are like the captain of the ship, steering it to the predestined port of heaven, when heaven and earth will be one. But in the meantime, let us not blame you for the evil and innocent suffering that surrounds us, but recognize that it's the work of evil people and of the brokenness of nature and of Satan himself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.